Tonight we're going to be talking about the Twin Cities, Athens and Corinth, cities that were separated by about 65 miles. In Acts chapters 17 and 18, Luke records the second missionary endeavors of the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, had been in Thessalonica, and from there he had made his way to Berea, and then leaving Berea, he came to the city of Athens. Luke tells us that when he left Athens, he went to the city of Corinth. And there are no doubt many similarities between these two cities. What strikes me in reading scripture and studying about the people that lived in Athens and Corinth is the fact that these two cities, in many respects, mirror modern-day cities all across our country. We talk about the relevance of Scripture. Scripture is transcendent. It is always relevant and pertinent. And so when you look at Acts chapters 17 and 18 and you think about the endeavors of Paul and Silas and Timothy and other first century saints... You see individuals that were striving to the best of their ability to make Christ known to a lost and dying world. And there were a lot of people in the first century that needed to hear about Christ. So when Paul got to the city of Athens and then later to the city of Corinth, his goal, make Christ known to these people. And so tonight I want to I begin by, first of all, offering an evaluation of these two cities. And then I want us to think about the education of these cities and then the exhortation to these cities. As we begin thinking about what the Bible has to say as we look into these two cities, first of all, we come to the city of Athens. And what stands out about Athens is they were known for their idolatrous ways. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, that when Paul arrived and as he waited on Timothy and Silas, his spirit was stirred within him. And the reason was because the whole city was given over to idolatry. Some have said it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. Shrines and temples, idolatrous practices were rampant in this city. Now, you have to understand that when we talk about Athens, it would have been described by many as the epicenter of learning and academics. As a matter of fact, it was the hub for science and literature and art. I mean, this is where people went to further their education, to learn and to grow. You remember in Acts chapter 17, the Bible talks about the Apostle Paul spending time in the marketplace and reasoning with the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicurean philosophers, they believed, they had the idea that life was all about pleasure to the minimization of pain. And there are a lot of folks today that have that same mentality. And the idea is eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy life. Why? Because in their minds there was no immortality. The idea that the soul would live, that there would be a resurrection, was absolutely foreign to them. And then the Stoics, founded by Zeno, 
The Stoics believed everything was governed by fate. They too denied the immortality of the soul. And so you had people that had bought into these philosophies. And as Luke said, they spent their time in nothing else but either to hear or to tell some new thing. They accused the Apostle Paul of being a babbler. And that word literally means a seed picker. And the idea was that Paul had gone around and picked up bits and pieces of information and then passed it off as his own. Well, Paul was speaking by inspiration. He received revelation from Almighty God. That's exactly what he said in Galatians chapter 1. And so as he talked to those in Athens, one of the things that stirred or piqued their interest was what he had to say about Jesus and the resurrection. No doubt foreign to their ears. Because as I said a moment ago, many of those people denied the immortality of the soul. The resurrection of the dead. And then you come to the city of Corinth. And Corinth was filled with idolatry like Athens. But the Corinthians were really known for their immorality. As a matter of fact, some have said that the name Corinthian became synonymous with debauchery, prostitution. And so when you went to the city of Corinth, not only were you faced with idolatry, but there was rampant immorality. You remember over in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about the unrighteous not inheriting the kingdom of God. And he itemized some of the problems that were so prevalent in Corinth. He said, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners. And then he said, and such were some of you. So here were people that were in what we would call a cesspool of immorality. Now you think about our country today. And I would challenge you to go to San Francisco or L.A. or New York or Chicago or Boston, Miami, Atlanta, Memphis. What do you see? What you saw in Athens? What you saw in Corinth? Think about our country for a minute. We, we talk about the pluralistic mindset of our country. And I think about Years ago in this country, by and large, most people believed in what we would call the one true living God, that is the God of heaven. But all of that has changed now. There are a lot of people that still believe in the one true living God. They may not, they may not necessarily understand New Testament Christianity as we do, but they believe in the, in the God of Scripture. But you add to that the numerous followers of Islam, and then you have the Buddhists, the Hindus. And we're not talking about people that lack intelligence. A lot of these people, like the people of Athens, highly, highly trained in their profession, extremely intelligent. Some have been to the finest universities that our country has to offer. And yet just because we have been trained 
in a university doesn't necessarily mean that we understand the nature of God and our need for God. You remember in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul talked about the Gentile world, and he said, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We have a lot of people that are highly educated, but foolish in their understanding of our origin, of what we're doing here, of where we're going. You remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I want you to think with me for, now, for just a moment now about how Paul sought to educate these cities. Paul sought to teach these people, to study with these people. Think about people in our, in our country today. There are a lot of folks in our, in our country today, do they understand the nature of God? The answer would be no. Do they understand their need for God? Again, the answer would be no. So what do we do? How do we offset spiritual ignorance, indifference? We have to teach people, don't we? What Jesus say in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. He said, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Christianity is a religion that necessitates people being taught. Jesus said in John 6, verse 45, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me. So Paul did what anyone trying to share the gospel would do. He sought to teach these people. To the Corinthians, he said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord. And ourselves as your servants for his sake. In 1 Corinthians 2, in about verse 2, he said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul sought to uplift Christ. But what about the nature of God? The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17 that Paul's spirit was stirred within him because the whole city was given over to idolatry. Luke tells us that while Paul stood in the midst of of the Areopagus or Mars Hill. But he saw an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And the Bible says that Paul made this statement. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I declare or proclaim to you. So here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to identify the nature of God. He talks about God the Creator. And if you talk about God the Creator, you have to talk about God the Redeemer. Now Paul said that God who made the world dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is he worshipped by the hands of men, as though he has need of anything. Those people in Athens, they gave gifts to their gods. The God that Paul was talking about was independent. 
He was and is the self-existent one. He's not dependent on anyone. God needs nothing from anyone, from any person. He's always been self-existent. He will always be that way. And so Paul makes known to them, first of all, that God is the one who made the world. Now that may, that may seem trivial to us. It's hard to imagine that here he is in the epicenter of learning in that day and time. And he's having to talk to them about something as basic and fundamental as the Creator. Not only did God create the world, but Paul said he made from one blood, all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Who made man? God did. God made man in his own image and likeness. And yet there are those that would tell us that we're the products of chance, evolution. Many of you have heard of Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan wrote a book called The Cosmos. And Sagan was an atheist. By and large, he might have defined himself as an atheist and an agnostic. Whatever the case may be, he believed in evolution. And in his book, do you know what he said? Here's a guy that has gone around the country during his lifetime and peddled this whole idea of evolution. There is no God. And then he says in his book that the probability of evolution... The probability of it being true is minute. What does that tell you? I mean, think about it. There are a lot of folks in our, in our country. You can go to Harvard, Yale. You can go to Vanderbilt. You can go to some of the leading institutions in our country. And they have individuals who have attained terminal degrees. That doesn't mean that they understand what the Bible has to say about the Creator doesn't mean that they understand the one that made them. Not long ago, I had the opportunity, I was doing a television program with Brother Garland Elkins. And during the course of our conversation on this program, we were talking about, we were talking about a debate that was held back in the 70s between Anthony Flew and Thomas B. Warren. And Brother Elkins was there to support Brother Warren in that debate. And Brother Elkins said that one of the strongest arguments that Thomas Warren made in his defense of creationism was the human body. The design of the human body. Anthony Flew was world-renowned. People everywhere, everywhere knew about him. Well, this guy later in life, late in life, conceded that there has to be a designer. Flew never came to embrace the idea of a personal God, but he did come to say he believed in a divine designer. Brother Elkins said, had Brother Warren been living and had Anthony Flew made that statement, he would have probably flown to England to sit down and talk to him. I don't doubt it. But there are a lot of folks that they're skewed when it comes to the origin of the world, the origin of man. And yet Paul said that it is in God that we live and move and have our very being. 
He said, it is God that is the giver of all life, breath, listen to him, and all things. Do the people in Athens need to learn about God? Yes, they did. Are there people in America? Are there people in Isle of Branch and Memphis and Atlanta and Chicago and New York around this country? Do they need to know, do they need to know about God? Yes. They need to understand about the nature of the one true God. And then I think about those people in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and about verse 5, Paul talks about the so-called gods, the idols of that day. But he said, there's only one God, the Father. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is Paul holding up the nature of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And by the, by the way, Jesus Christ is not a created being. Micah said in chapter 5 at verse 2, speaking of the Christ, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. Jesus, preexistent, always has existed, always will exist, just like God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then I think about not just God the Creator, but God the Redeemer. Think about Paul in Athens, among these intellectuals of his day, talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And here they are, infidels. You've got the Epicureans and the Stoics that did not believe in immortality. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And here's Paul talking about the Son of God who was put to death and raised from the dead on the third day. As a matter of fact, he said to the Romans, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus, God's only begotten Son, to the Corinthians, Paul spent, as a matter of fact, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 18, he spent some 18 months with those people. What did he do? Well, the Bible says in Acts chapter 18, verse 11, he continued there a year and six months. Doing what? Teaching the Word of God among them. Paul talked a lot about Christ. And as I think about the nature of God and the nature of of the only begotten Son of God. You read the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and you see the exaltation of the Son of God. Paul said the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, he said, it is the power of God to think that here he was in these Mecca centers of his day and he's upholding the very Son of God who paid the ultimate price for sin. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, in about verse 15, when Paul said, thanks be to God for his unspeakable, his indescribable gift. Who was he talking about, Jesus? The one who was rich, yet for our sakes made himself poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. So here is Paul lifting up Christ. What about their need for God? Did these people need God? The people in our world today, do they need God? Are there people in this city that need to hear about God and His Son? Absolutely. Why? Because of one word, sin. 
You remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul indicted the Gentile world, didn't he? In Romans chapter 1, Paul said that here were people that had worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul said that God gave them up. They were spiritually bankrupt. So in Romans chapter 1, the conclusion is the Gentiles are sinners. In chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the Jewish people. You can just imagine after having finished chapter 1, here are the Jews over here, and they're listening to what Paul says about the Gentiles, and they're clapping their hands. And they're saying, you tell them, Paul, these people are sinners, reprobates, ungodly people. When Paul finished chapter 2, you know what his conclusion was? The Jews, they're in sin. And so in chapter 3, here was his conclusion. There is none righteous, no, not one. He said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. Paul indicted everyone. All are under sin. Why? Well, sin is defined as a transgression of the law. Literally, it means a missing of the mark. The mark that we're missing is the standard imposed upon us by Almighty God. If God is our creator, does he have a right to dictate how his creation lives? I think he does. God doesn't need a committee telling him how he's to operate the world. God doesn't need people to tell him how his people are to act. God has the right, the prerogative. He is the creator. He has every right to impose upon us his will and his ways. So, according to Paul, all are under sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what do people need? They need a Savior, don't they? So when Paul's in Athens, what's he telling these people about? About Jesus and the resurrection? When he's in Corinth, what's he telling these people about Jesus and the resurrection? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 9, he said, God is faithful through whom or by whom we've been called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When he wrote to the church at Corinth, and he identified the immorality that was so prevalent among them. In verse 11 he said, and such were some of you. But what happened? You were washed. Why were they washed? Because they had been in sin. Why did they need to be washed? Because they were sinners. Why did they need to be washed in the blood of Christ? So that they could stand pure and just in the eyes of God. They needed a Savior. Now I want to ask you tonight. Do you know anybody that needs a Savior? You could go from city to city. You could go from the East Coast to the West Coast. You could go to pole to pole. You'll find the same thing. People in need of a Savior. Look at the traveling. Look at the travels of the Apostle Paul. Look at him as he, as he is in Thessalonica. And prior to that, think about when he's in Philippi. And then here he is in Athens and then Corinth and Ephesus and on and on. What's he doing? He's trying to tell these people about the Son of God who loved them and died for them. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 19? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You remember what the angel of God said to Joseph? That Mary would have a son, his name would be called Jesus, and he would save his people from their sins. 
Here is the Apostle Paul, and he is lifting up Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, the one who came to save us. And then what about that exhortation? What about the exhortation given by Paul to the cities? Go to Athens. Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 17 in verse 30. Paul has just identified for these people the one true living God. So here's what they need to understand. And you can just hear the Apostle Paul saying, warning, warning, warning. What's the warning? There is a judgment coming. You are God's creation. And as your creator, God is holding you accountable for how you live. Now what do people need to hear today? Warning, warning, warning. Why? Because God is your creator. And God will hold you accountable. Does he have the right to hold us accountable? Absolutely. So here's what he said. Truly these times of ignorance God winked at. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why would God want people to repent? Because God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. The truth, and only the truth, sets people free. John 8, verse 32. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So listen to why he calls on people to repent. Because Paul said he is appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. By whom? By the man whom he has ordained. In that, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. First of all, we have to understand that Paul is saying... There is a Savior who will judge us. Who is the Savior that will judge us? Jesus. You remember, you remember what he said to the Corinthians? We must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus himself said in John 5 and about verse 22 that the Father has given the Son the right to execute judgment. Jesus is the one who will judge us. Paul said, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what Paul said to the people in Athens. That's what he said to the people in Corinth. If Paul were alive today and he visited Olive Branch or he visited Memphis or New York or San Francisco or L.A. or Chicago or wherever, what do you think he'd be talking about? Jesus, the resurrection, and the judgment to come? Why? Because he wants people to understand. He'd want people to understand that one day we're going to stand before the judge of all the earth. And as Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God's going to do what's right. And God will one day judge us. But note, if you would, the standard by which we'll be judged. Paul said he's going to judge the world in righteousness. That is, we're going to be judged on the basis of God's word. It's not going to be on the basis of what I think or what I think God ought to do. It's not going to be on the basis of popular opinion. 
It's not going to be according to what this group says or that group says or this politician says or that politician says or this political party or that political party. No, we're going to be judged by God's holy word. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 2, that the judgment of God is according to truth. There are a lot of people in our world today just like in Athens, just like in Corinth. A lot of folks don't know anything about truth. So whose job is it to tell people? It's my responsibility and yours. We have the responsibility of telling people about the judge of all the earth. You see, God wants all people to be saved. That's why the Apostle Paul literally gave his life for the cause. He was willing to suffer and to die for the cause. His goal, to present every man perfect in Christ. So, these two twin cities had a lot in common, a lot of similarities. And as I said a moment ago, the cities of Athens and Corinth, very relevant to us today. The remedy for those two cities, the same remedy for people today. It's Jesus. We have to turn to the great physician. The antidote for sin is the blood of Christ. Jesus shed his blood for our sins. The beauty of obeying the gospel is we can contact that blood. And all the blood, or all the sin rather, that we have committed in life can be washed away. So tonight we ask the question, are you a Christian? Have you obeyed the gospel? Do you understand that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day? Would you be willing to live for him day in and day out? If you believe Jesus to be the Son of God and you're willing to repent of your sins and confess his name and be immersed in the watery grave of baptism, the Bible says you'll enjoy the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2.38. And if you're faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. And maybe you're here tonight. For whatever reason, you're not what you ought to be. Why not let us pray with you and for you? The assurance is that God will abundantly pardon. God will forgive your sins. You'll be back in fellowship with him and with his people. So tonight, we encourage you to come as we stand and sing.